So turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 17. And we're going to start in verse 8. So verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Let's pray. (sighs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your constant call to us to come and know you more. We thank you for the constant call to every Christian saved by your gospel to come and know you more intimately. So God, I pray today that as we hear these words and we we connect these bridges, Lord, that you would ignite a passion in us to truly dive deep with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what we have a representation of here is we have a representation of a physical posture here in this world, changing something in the spiritual world and having a physical manifestation on the battlefield, right? So as long as Moses had his hands up, The battle was being won on the field, right? As long as Moses took the posture, the obedient posture, something in the spiritual realm changed and a physical manifestation of that change in the spiritual realm happened on the battlefield, right? You're tracking with me so far? So turn with me to Mark Chapter 2. <clears throat> and I apologize that we're not, <laughs> we're not going into Acts. I, God has confirmed that like, he wants that to keep going, but this, I, this is what he brought to the front of the line today. So at some other point, we're going to continue going on in Acts. We have, I have not forgotten about Acts. As a matter of fact, that was probably one of the things I said to God this week. Was, God, what about Acts? Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine, skin will, the, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So this is widely known as one of the first parables of Jesus. <clears throat> and a lot of people just think that he's like talking about vineyard stuff here, right? He's, he's, he's just talking about, you know, the practices of winemaking. But in reality, what he's actually talking about is fasting, so, you have the old structure, right? You have the, the old covenant, you have the, the old structure, all of the old uh, ceremonies and, and that, they, that they would practice. But then you had Jesus on the earth at that time. And of course, he hadn't been crucified, he hadn't been resurrected yet. So the new covenant wasn't yet in place when he made this statement, which is why he's making the statement the way that he is. <clears throat> but what you have is you have him painting a picture that they weren't ready, they're, they're not ready to see, right? Let he who has ears, let him hear. Let he who has eyes, let him see. They weren't picking up what he was laying down. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. He's talking about himself. And now the interesting, interesting caveat is that in Jewish culture, the bridegroom always refers to Yahweh. That was in, in the Old Testament times, it, he was always, he, that was always directed at Yahweh, right? So he's, he's telling them, but he's not telling them, but he's, he's subtly sliding it in there that I'm the bridegroom, I'm the son of God, I'm the Messiah, which they would have immediately picked up on. So the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. So then when you, when you think about the hierarchy and the structure of the Old Testament and the, their old ways, you, you think about something that's comfortable, right? So the people that he's talking to, the Pharisees, they had grown extremely comfortable with all of the process and the posturing and the symbolism and all of the practices of the, of the Jewish life very much like in the American church now, you know, like when, when you think about something like communion, you know, there, there's lots of churches that either don't even do it anymore, or they just kind of, you know, toss a cup out, and it's like, here, you, you guys, you know, you know what to do with this. You, you guys do communion. And it's, it, it becomes almost like a yawn fest, right? Like, because the original intended meaning behind it is kind of lost on what we're doing with it today. And that's very much the way that it was in Judaism at the time. I mean, the Pharisees were looked at as the, you know, the top of the food chain in that world, as far as it is in the Jewish world. But in reality, it was all just pomp and circumstance to them. There, there was no like heart behind it. There was no, you know, the, there was no huge passion anymore for them. It had become more about power and money, right? Which is why they hated Jesus, because he started to disrupt where they get their power and their money from. 
always dangerous ground to stand on. You might end up on a tree or something. So, what he's saying, what, what he's trying to say to them is that, that he doesn't fit in, right? So, the, the, the new patch on the garment, if it's not pre-shrunk, right? I don't know about you guys, but I'm a bigger dude. So, like, when I buy a work shirt, I am adamant, ask any of my kids, I will freak out. They have to go in the dryer on low or else they will become, you know, an 80s football shirt that I am not, I do not have the posture for. And I am at the entrance to Walmart half of my day with my hands above my head in a header. So you don't want to see that coming into Walmart. I'll end up on the, on the internet somewhere, like more fix-it guys of Walmart. It'll be a whole new, nobody wants to see that. I don't even want to see that. But if you, so if you take, if I buy a new shirt and I sew it onto one of my old shirts, that's already been shrunk. But the fabric that I add to my shirt hasn't been shrunk. Then of course, the first time you wash it, the new fabric is going to shrink, which is going to rip apart the old fabric even worse. And what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, I don't fit into this old structure, right? The old covenant with all of its foundational things. He's saying that, we're doing something new here, right? We're, we're doing something different here, and it's not going to mesh. You, you can't just cleanly sew the new covenant into the old covenant. That's why it's a new covenant, because it's completely new. It's not picking up the old and taking it with you into the new thing. It's a completely new thing that you're moving into, right? Everybody? Okay. Now, a lot of times I've heard, I've heard many pastors speak on the wineskins, and if you're not careful, you can run away with this with your own mind and, and make it say some stuff that it probably doesn't really say. Well, that stuff that it definitely doesn't say. I've heard people use this passage as like a church growth kind of thing, like the old wineskins are the old ways of reaching people and the new wineskins are the new ways of reaching people. And, and no, 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 no. That's, that's, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is that in order for us, at its basic level, in order for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to respond to the gospel and to be part of the new covenant, you have to be a new vessel. Because the gospel is explosive. Understanding the gospel and how God did all these things for you, that's mind-blowing. And it's not just mind-blowing, but it's... it's Skin-busting. So if you've not been made new, if you're still operating in the old, if you're an old wineskin, you don't understand the gospel, you can't handle the new covenant. You can't handle the gospel. It's going to blow up and then it's going to bust your wineskin. They don't go together. You have to be made new in order to move forward with Jesus. And this is a message predominantly for the Jewish people that he was talking to that were calling him out because his disciples weren't fasting yet, right? Who some of us may agree or disagree to the degree that they have power. I'm not going to mention any names. Jessica Palmer. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, I'm a little brother at heart. So no one puts new wine into an old wine skin. If it does, obviously the, 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 on the surface you understand that as well. The fermentation process creates gases, which makes everything expand. And then it contracts as 
the sugar alcohols and stuff convert back down into the whatever you have inside your wineskin, right? But wineskins can only really do that one time. If you try to do that twice, you got a mess on your hands. Good luck. So, so the symbolism is there. So someone who doesn't have ears to hear heard him say that, and they're just like, this rabbi's talking about wineskins. Like, what, what is he even? They just, it's kind of like a rock skipping across the surface. It doesn't even go in. Just chip, 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 right over their head. But in reality, what he's saying, and, and again, you can't deny the fact either that th- this definitely could represent the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that he knew was coming as well. Once we respond to the gospel, there is a new outpouring. We talked about it for the last few times that we've been together. There's an outpouring. There's an outpouring of power through the Holy Spirit for us to accomplish the Great Commission. But we're not quite there yet, right? This is just, Jesus was really into foreshadowing. If, you, if, you're, if you're a reader of books, you know, it's, he's trying to give you clues as to where everything's all headed. And then when you finally get there, you look back, you're like, oh, okay, okay. Got it, got it. So we as vessels, we have certain tools that are available to us. Now, this is where the subject gets interesting because I've heard many, 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 uh, (laughs) I've heard heard many sermons on fasting and I've heard uh, some that are biblically grounded and then I've heard others that uh, not so much. I believe there's, 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 truth. there's truth about fasting, so let's just go over that. So pe- going back to the beginning, right? We were talking about Moses. We were talking about a physical posture that he took, right? He, he took this physical posture to affect the spiritual realm, which affected the physical world. Fasting is a, is a physical posture that we can take as believers. Now, I, I, I can't stand here in front of you and say that when you fast, you, you somehow bend the ear of God or grab God's ear and, and like he, he hears you better or he, you know, I can't go that far. And I've heard many well-known pastors that will go that far and say that. I, I personally don't find that in scripture. What I do find in scripture is that the whole point of the relationship between you and Jesus is for you to draw closer and to become so in tune with Jesus and his heart for the world, that his desires become your desires because you guys are in tune so much. So through fasting, if you look at it from another lens, fasting is more like, see, I come from a military family, although I wasn't in the military, but my brother would talk about how the bond that he formed with the guys in basic when he was in the military was like a lifelong bond because they suffered together, right? They're, they're getting yelled at by the drill sergeant. They're down together scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush. And that once you go through that with somebody, like you develop this really close bond and you really start to get to know them, right? Well, in our spiritual walk, when God tells you to fast and you do it, you start to draw closer to God because you're, you're starting to put him as a priority even over your food. And believe it or not, we're... I hate to break this to you, but we're animals, you know, on the planet. And a lot of our brain is motivated by food and taste and smell. And, and as much as you'd like to not believe that, I, I, 
I dare you to smell your favorite food without getting your mouth full of saliva. You don't think about that. It just kind of happens because it's yum. I'm thinking about bacon or whatever it is for you that it is. So for us to take that away and deny ourselves, it's denying our flesh. For however long God tells you to do it. Luckily for me, this Thursday, he just told me that I had to do it for Thursday because as you can tell by my body figure, I don't enjoy fasting a whole lot. But I need to do it more. Something that I've been convicted of this week as well. If I truly desire what I say I desire, then I have to shut up and not open my mouth. I, I have to keep my mouth closed to food. If I really want more intimacy with God, this is the step that would be taken. By denying myself, I, I'm, I'm training myself, I'm telling myself, my substance doesn't come from the table. It comes from the Lord. He's bigger than the table. On on one, I mean, there, there's deeper realms for this. And people fast for all different kinds of reasons. When, when they need breakthrough and they really want an answer to a question that they're asking the Lord, you can fast. I don't know that there's biblical evidence to say that fasting speeds up God's response for you. But what I do know is that there's biblical evidence for while you're fasting, the noise around you starts to deaden out. So it's a way of turning down YouTube or Netflix or whatever thing consumes your time all the time. It's a way of turning and dimming all the lights around you to where you can hear God better while you're fasting. I mean, scientific studies have proven that it even gives you improved mental clarity when you fast for extended periods of time. So it's, it's less about forcing God to do miracles, right? Which I've heard preached and Again, I have great respect for a lot of preachers and people that I've listened to, but I've heard messages where people talk about some kind of like, possibly like an account that you have in heaven. And fasting gives you like points in that account to where when you pray for people, they become healed. That's, it's a stretch. So what I'm saying is that it's less about forcing God into doing miracles and it's more of us posturing ourselves for God to hear our prayers because as we draw closer to him, his desires become our desires. So it's not a matter of I get to become a genie and pray for anything that I want and poof, it appears. Like, oh, look, there's my boat. That's not the way that it works. But it's that we, we begin to start to ask God for the right things. And then poof, there's my opportunity. Right? <clears throat> but the motivation behind it always needs to be drawing nearer to God, not getting some magical power or cape or mask or what ha whatever superhero thing you want to throw in there. It's not about becoming the magician on the stage that rips back the sheet and ta-da, the lady's not cut in half. It's not about that. It's about drawing nearer to God. Drawing and becoming so close to him that you can feel his heart as you pass by someone on the street. You don't know that they're depressed, but for some reason, boom, in your brain, you're like, that person has like a black cloud over their head. I just have this feeling about them. And it happens. It's happened to me before. 
which is nuts, but it, it happens. I remember a while back, probably two, three years ago, four years ago maybe, I was playing drums in the worship band at the time. There was a dude sitting back here towards the back, and I don't know what it was, but, and I'm trying to play the drums and pay attention to the worship set and stuff, but God highlighted this guy to me. I knew that he was sad at first, and then as I kept looking at him, I could tell like his, he, he, was like, he was like in sorrow, and then I saw a woman. And so as nuts as it was, and of course, don't ever share this with Margie because she's the person that pushes you out of the plane when you go skydiving if you have any doubts. Like she's just like, don't think, go. <laughs> so she, she booted me off the stage and I went and talked to the guy and his grandmother had died that morning. And so he, God, God had a message for him. Like I prayed over him and, and, and it, was, it was a really cool thing, especially for somebody like me where I'm like, if you'd have asked me that morning, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I've never experienced anything like that before. But now, good luck denying it because here we are. So it happens. But it only happens when you're sensitive enough to God's leading to hear those ticks, to hear those nuances, to hear his heart for the people that are around you. But if you've got all this noise in your life and you've got bills and you've got kids, and well, I've got kids. If you need some kids, you can borrow some kids. But there, there's so much going on in, in your life. It's very easy, and it's not like unholy, but it's, it's very easy just to get busy and caught up with all this other stuff. And then all of a sudden you're numb to hearing the ticks from God back and forth, which is another great tool for fasting. Because when you realize that, man, I haven't like heard God tell me to pray for anybody in a while. I haven't heard, guess what? It's probably time to fast. It's probably time to turn the volume down and get re-centered on who God is. My mind keeps going, right now my mind keeps going back to the, to the verse that where he says, depart from me because I never knew you. It's not that we don't know God. It's not that we don't read our Bible even. It's not that like if somebody's sick and comes into the church, we don't pray for them. But he doesn't know us. You can know about God, but knowing about God knowing about the scriptures and him knowing you and affecting your life and your desires becoming his desires and you seeking to spend time with him and putting him in a priority over everything in your life. These are two different things that we're talking about. Two entirely different worlds. So it's, it's kind of, it's up to us, Right? I think a lot of times, and, and in my past experience even, we, we get stuck on the mundane. And now I'm not kicking the Pharisees because, I mean, I've been a Pharisee before. I think everybody in the room's probably been a Pharisee before. You get comfortable. Things don't have the same meaning that they did before. It's not on purpose, but little by little, things just kind of, eh, you, you become numb to stuff. It reminds me of, I, I work a lot at hospitals with my job. Hospitals always have a ton of automatic doors to go fix. And I remember this one particular time, there was, the, the, I'm trying to remember what the code was called, but they called the code over the speakers. And now I'm at Hurley Hospital, and they have, in the emergency room, they have a trauma corridor. And they have this huge sliding door that opens, and they actually, it's there as a security feature, so that way if like two people that are trying to shoot each other end up at the same hospital, they can lock out anybody else from coming into the room and trying to like finish stuff. So 
it's this big, huge, heavy security door, and I've got the thing open, and I'm, I'm doing an inspection for it, so I'm testing circuits and stuff, and they call this code medical, and then about 30 seconds later, two doors swing open, and there's a guy on a gurney, and there's a, a little nurse on top, and they're doing CPR on this guy, and they blow right past me, and I had to go out to my van. It, like, shook me up seeing that. Like, I'm like, well, that was, like, real life. This wasn't, like, an episode of ER in the background. This was, like, that's a dude on that thing losing his life. And I, I was, like, shook up about it for a good, probably the next two or three days. I remember I even mentioned it to Shannon. Like, I just can't get this, like, vision out of my head. But, you know, nurses and staff at the hospital, they deal with that kind of stuff 24 hours a day. It doesn't even phase them for that to go by them. It's just part of everyday life. They've become numb to that aspect, right? Or when I'm working up in the NICU and those little babies are crying in the rooms, oh, it drives me insane. I, I cannot finish those doors fast enough because I hate being up there because you can just hear them. Some of them don't even have anybody in the room with them. They're just laying there crying, you know? And my heart's like breaking for them. I'm trying to like, okay, just fix the door and get out of here. Just fix the door and get out of here. But the nurses and the people on the floor you know, they're desensitized to that kind of stuff. Like, that switch is just shut off. They're patients. And it's, it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that nurses are, nurses are like angels on earth. I'm not saying that they're bad at all. I'm saying that when you're exposed to something over and over and over, you can become desensitized to it, to where the average person like me, I'm a blubbering idiot by the time I get off that floor because I just want to go grab and hold all the babies that are crying. It drives me nuts. It's the same way with our spiritual life, right? When you're around it, it can become mundane. It can become routine. It can become as normal as putting your shoes on in the morning. You know what I mean? The things that we do in life where we don't even really think twice about it. I don't think about, when I'm walking down the street, I'm not going left, right, <laughs> watch out for the crack, left, right. Like, you don't have to think about that, right? You just walk and you're thinking about other stuff. You put your shoes on in the morning. You don't have to go through the directions of how to tie your laces. It's all mundane. You just go into autopilot and you do it. So if we're in that space, there's a good chance, possibly, that we don't know we're in that space, right? There's a good chance that, when's the last time you read a Bible story and you wept? I mean, it's insane. I mean, are you hitting a quota every day to get through the Bible in one year and, you know, you have that kind of stuff? Or are you really reading it and understanding it and processing it with your brain and letting it attach to you? The horrible things that were endured on your behalf and you don't even deserve it. Like, I don't even deserve what's in the Bible. When's the last time that hit you? Like, when's the last time that really grabbed your heartstrings? When's the last time you had an emotional connection to something spiritual? It might be time to fast. Now, there is correlation between people who fast and people who see miracles done. Now, in the scripture, again, there is no direct evidence in scripture that says, you know, if you fast for this many hours or this many days, you know, you get one free where it's, you can walk up to a car crash and the cars are fixed and everything. Like there, there's no, I wish there was. I really wish there was some kind of like magical formula that you could just follow and then you could heal anybody. That would be amazing. 
But what I can tell you is that even in my own experience from being healed, again, uh, I want to say four years ago, my eardrum ruptured. It, I, I believe it was on a Friday, if I'm not mistaken. I think I went home from work early on Friday. I had this pressure building behind my right ear. And I got home and I told Shannon, I'm like, I don't know if I need to go to the hospital or what, but it feels like there's a balloon in my head. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse to the point where I was like getting nauseated. Like it just, this splitting headache in my head. And so I went upstairs and I laid down. And then all of a sudden, like I'm, I'm laying there and I'm not sleeping because my head's hurting. But all of a sudden, all the pressure just went away. And then this ringing sound started. And then this, like every four heartbeats, there would be this throb behind my right ear. And so... I turned my head, and then that's when, like, a bunch of gross stuff came out of my, it was gross. My nose, my ear sneezed, and, like, all this stuff came out. And so I, so I went, we we ended up going to the hospital, and, you know, they looked in there, and they're like, yeah, you you have a ruptured eardrum. Apparently, my sinus infection had caused a clog somewhere, and it just went up until it popped, and then it, it released. So now I'm dealing with this, it's like I could hear my heartbeat, but it only hurt on, like, the fourth one. It was like, ow, ow. Ow, ow. And then there's this, I know it's a weird description, but, and then there's this ringing that would just, it would, it would vary in severity. It would, it would, sometimes it would be like tolerable and I could like hear what you're saying to me. And then other times it would get so loud to where like my eyes are watering, my ears ringing so hard. Well, I remember asking the nurse or the PA, whoever it was that I talked to, I don't think I actually talked to a real doctor because it was like routine. Um, I'm like, well, I play drums in my worship band. You know, how, how long do you think it's going to be before I'm allowed to play drums? And she's like, you're talking six weeks at the very least. I wouldn't even try it because, you know, it's going to hurt even worse if you overload it with anything. I'm like, okay. So then that Sunday I come to church, and I think somebody, it started with, I think somebody said, like, right cheek pain, if I remember correctly, some. I was like, does anybody have any right cheek pain? And of course, I'm like, well, my ear hurts, so they're not talking about me. And then I think, it was, of course, it was Margie again, the, the one kicking me out of the airplane. That she, she was just like, oh, it's the right side. Of, that's the area. Like, you need to come up and get prayed for. So Kim, I, I don't know if it was Kim that felt the pain in her cheek. I don't remember how that worked. But anyway, skip the scene. Kim's up here in the front, and she put her hand over my ear. And the first time she prayed for me, it's crazy because I got up and it was like the, the ringing was getting worse and worse and worse. And then she put her hand over my ear like this and I don't even remember what she prayed. All I remember is me thinking, God, she has a lot of faith for doing this and I don't deserve for my ear to be healed, but she does. And then the ringing stopped. And I'm like, so then I went and sat down and then it was like somebody told on me in the room. They're like, he's not done. Like, there's still more. And so they asked me if, like, it was all the way gone. I'm like, well, the ringing stopped, but it's still hurting a little. And they're like, all right, get back up here and let's pray for you again. Now, mind you, I'm a guy that <laughs> an hour before service, this kind of stuff doesn't happen, right? I've got an eardrum that's busted. I'm going to be out for six weeks. I'm going to be off work for a few days. It's kind of making me dizzy a little bit. So I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to go to work tomorrow. This is the reality that I'm operating in when I walk in this room. But when I walked out of this room, it was gone and my hearing was restored. Now I'm telling you that because <laughs> it's insane. Like in my mind still, if I think about it too hard, I'm just like, 
uh, I don't know. Did, did I did it break in a dream? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it's it's almost still unbelievable for me. But what I'm telling you is, is that a person that prayed over me, Kim Green, she has been on a schedule of some type, and she's been fasting and doing things like that for a long time. And she's the one that happened to pray over me that day, and my ear got healed. There's direct correlation between people practicing the discipline of fasting and people getting healed. And when I say direct correlation, I mean direct, on my head, direct. Now, I don't know about other people, like, I'm trying to think of the, the guy that Shannon had a chat with in Toronto. What's his name? Randy Clark. I don't know how much he fasts, but I know that, like, he imparts stuff and people fall down and people get healed all the time wherever he goes, which is awesome. I don't know what kind of fasting or stuff that I wish you'd put out a book and just give us the answer because there'd be a lot more Randy Clarks walking around. Hi. Hi. She's still pushing. Right. It's insane. We, we saw him in a movie once that after we had moved here. Shannon was part of a church in Dearborn. I'm getting sidetracked, but I'm, I'm going to continue. She was part of a church in Dearborn, and they went to Toronto during the Toronto thing when it, when it, first, when it first started. And so she was there, and she kind of got freaked out because it wasn't even a Pentecostal church, but the people just heard of what was happening in Toronto, so they went. And, uh, you know, there's lots of crazy stuff going on. And um, she kind of got freaked out and just stood off to the side and sat down, and this dude sat down next to her and was just had this conversation where they were like, yeah, there's lots of crazy stuff going on, you know. Um, but, you know, there's God here too. And so they, they had this good conversation. He started reading her mail about some stuff because at the time she was not going to be able to continue college in New York where she was going and stuff. And he just kind of started spitting that stuff to her. Now, this is before Randy Clark became the ginormous Randy Clark. He's, he is Randy Clark now because of the stuff. And, and we see him in like one of the Holy Ghost movies or something. She's like, oh, that's the guy who talked to me in Toronto. Oh my God. We're, like, we're like, what? And she's like, yeah, he, he was the one that I had the conversation with, the guy that knew stuff. And I'm like... That is insane. Because, <laughs> you know, that just happens every day, right? So, again, off topic. But I don't know what kind of regimen he's on, but I would, I would highly suspect that he is also a faster. That he has some kind of routine that he's on or that he's keeping fresh and keeping familiar and not getting numb to. And he's really pressing into God to have that kind of a, anointing and favor. The question is, is what are you running towards? When I ask, when I ask that question, I mean it from like a church perspective because I have not been able to get the healing room out of my head for, I think Keith called me Wednesday and asked me, and as soon as he asked me, the first thought in my head was fasting and the second thought was the healing room. And it's just been that. Ever, ever since. And I really feel like God is taking us on a journey of preparing for the healing room. And it's, it's not, we don't want to do this for selfish reasons, right? I'm not going to like wave a flag up here like, everybody needs to fast because then our church is going to be really well known and blah, blah, blah. No, we need to be close to Christ. We need to be close to Jesus. We need to be so in tune with him that the things that we pray for are already on his heart and that's why they come true. Because we're so in tune. We're so in tune. We're walking step by step. 
And it's possible to have that kind of a relationship. It feels amazing when you have that, when you know that like the lines are clear, like you are hearing God. He's giving you like cool stuff that just pops in your head and you write down when you're reading your Bible and like when, you're, when you have quiet time. Like it just feels like the engine's running, right? And like the machine is working and, and he's giving you stuff and you're getting stuff and it feels amazing. But it is really hard to keep that intact because life it is amazing to, have, to, to just give God your, your entire attention. And like, you, you just, you feel his presence in the room with you. But then the dog starts whining in the cage and he's going to wake up the other kids and like all of a sudden somebody flips a switch and life turns on. And you're like, ah, I want to be in here, but my wife will kill me if I don't go in there and take care of the dog. But you know what I mean? It's so hard to maintain and keep that fire going. But that doesn't mean that you should stop right? We have to keep throwing logs in the fireplace. We can't become complacent. Lukewarm Christianity is not going to produce anything in a healing room. I wasn't planning on saying that, but that came out and that was actually pretty awesome. <laughs> Lukewarm Christianity is not going to produce anything at the healing room. Anybody can walk up to somebody at the airport and like, oh, I'm praying for you, buddy. Have a great day. That's not what healing rooms are for. Healing rooms are for limps to be gone when people leave. Healing rooms are for a stack of wheelchairs in the back, praying for people and huge masses on their body going away. That's, that's what healing rooms are for, right? But if we're not giving it our full effort, if we're not really pressing in, I mean really, really pressing in to God. Old question, what are we waiting for? I want all that, that God has for me. I want to see people delivered. I want to be able to walk up to drug addicts and just wave my hand in front of their forehead and heroin is gone. And I believe that that kind of power exists and that kind of an anointing can exist. But it's up to me to draw close to God. Everybody likes to talk about revival. It's like, it's becoming like love in our culture where we, I love hot dogs. I, I love the tires on my car. Revival is not that kind of word. That's not a numb everyday word. But revival comes from drawing close to God and walking in tune with him, step by step, and his desires becoming your desires. That's where revival comes from. It's not just something you fly to Toronto to see. No offense, Shannon. <laughs> James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. It's one of the most commonly misquoted verses in the entire Bible because it's very convenient to take that first part of the verse. But there's a second part to the verse. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. My passions. I'm not pointing at you. I'm pointing at us. There you go. What is he saying? He's saying that if you're not walking with God and you're not drawing into God, you're not asking for godly things. You're asking for your stuff. 
don't have stuff. If you have responded to the gospel and you fully understand what the gospel means, you don't have a you. I don't have a Steve. Thank God I don't have a Steve. But I exist only to serve Christ. Like that's where all of this is headed. That's where all of it is supposed to be going. I, I, I love my brothers today that they were talking about the shape that our country is in. And I can't help but believe that that's our fault. The cold hard truth is, is we haven't been operating in step with the Lord for a long time as the American church. It's been a lukewarm bath since like the 80s. I'm just being brutally honest and I'm not talking about necessarily this building, you understand what I mean. But we've lost our passion and zeal and our hunger for wanting to draw close to God. I, I... If you want to fix the country, fix your spiritual life. Fix your household. Fix your marriage. And that bleeds out into a community who are also doing the same thing. And that bleeds out into a county. And that bleeds out into a state. But it's easier to sit back and talk about how things are and not really change nothing, right? I mean, because that's what we do. No, no. That's not what we're called to. Fasting changes an inward condition. It's, a, it's also an inward posture. Meaning that I'm not resting on food as my sustenance, but I'm taking a physical posture of the Lord Jesus is over everything in my life. I rest in Christ alone. And you don't think of it as work. Right? You don't think, I'm guilty of this too. I was guilty of this on Thursday morning actually because I woke up, had my alone time with God and, and I kind of, I, I could feel that like he was going to tell me to, I knew that he was, <laughs> I knew from Wednesday that he was going to have me talk about fasting and it was like I was ready for it. I'm like, no God, please. No, 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 not that thing. And, and so it was like, it, and I'm looking at it as work. It's going to be so hard. I'm going to be at work all day. People are going to be walking by me eating food and stuff. It's going to be super hard. I don't really want to do it. And so from that perspective, I'm looking at it like work. I'm looking at it like something I got to punch a card to go do. But in reality, what it is, is you're working out a spiritual muscle. And some people start, there's all kinds of ways to fast. If you find something in your life that's taking up time that should be God's, you can fast from that. Start there. If you play a game on your phone for like two hours a day, but you haven't gotten to your Bible in the last week. You might want to fast from that game. If you are, are getting really sucked into something, sports or some team or whatever sporty stuff, if, if that's taking up all your free time and it's all you can think about and it's all that you accomplish when you, when you have idle time, you may want to think about fasting from that. If there's something unhealthy in your life besides food, which food's unhealthy too, but... If there's something in your life that's, that's consuming your time that you're making time for, but you're not making time for God, it's probably time to fast from that. You could start in this area, or you can just go full bore and be like, you know what? I feel like God's telling me not to eat today. Suck it up, buttercup. We're not going to eat today. And then you just go on through your day. I, 
And then before you know it, once you get that down, then all of a sudden you start to go to two days. Go to three days. As you press in, it becomes easier and easier to do. It, it's a muscle. It's a discipline. But every time you go to the gym, you know, over, over, the, over the course of a six-week period, if you go to the gym every day, all of a sudden, on the last day, over six weeks, you're lifting heavier weights. Or if you haven't adjusted them, you're, you're, just, you're not even really breaking a sweat. You're, you're doing the same things, but all of a sudden, your muscles have gotten stronger and you're able to do more. You work out. Fasting is the exact same way. Drawing close to God is the exact same way. If you make that a priority in your life, we have time for what we care about. <laughs> it's hard to hear myself say that because I feel almost hypocritical because I find time for a lot of dumb stuff. I'm just being honest. I do. So, let's go to John 14 and then we'll land the plane there. So, John 14. Absolutely. John 14, uh, verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, he's not talking about the, the rubbing the genie lamp and getting whatever you want, what your flesh desires. He's talking about being so in tune with the rabbi that his thoughts are your thoughts, that his desires are your desires. Maybe I went too far with the thoughts because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So back up and delete that part. But you understand what I mean. His heart, when his heart is moved for someone, your heart's moved for someone. If you reach that place, according to the scripture, that unlocks something in the spiritual realm where when you're praying for his desire, that's how you have confidence in your prayers. I believe that if you're so in tune with God, God's just going to start looking at people and it's like, oh, Margie's foot hurts. And God's going to be like, go pray for her foot. And you can be confident in that because God told you to go pray for a foot and boom, she gets healed. But I think a lot of times, at least in my experience, I've prayed for people that God hasn't necessarily told me to pray for. It was just like I'm like an excited puppy. I'm just energetic and don't know what to do with myself. So then I go and, you know, some guy in a wheelchair, I didn't get a word of knowledge or anything for him. It was just like, sir, you should be walking. <laughs> you know, and it's not bad energy, but it's just not, that's not God directed. So I, said all that to say this. I believe that God's calling us to fast as a church again. I know that when we first, when we first came to the church, uh, like 2014, I think, something like that, 14, 15, um, it, it, was, it was kind of like an instituted thing. We had prayer meeting on Wednesday night and everybody would fast until prayer meeting, which is great. And I'd like to encourage that, a corporate-wide fast, that's great. But on a personal level, 
between you and the Lord, I think it's, I think it's time to dive deeper, right? I, th- I think it's time to press in. There are days that are coming that a lukewarm Christian is not going to be able to get through. Fact of life, it's in the scriptures. There are days coming, they're not going to get a lot easier, they're going to get harder. Situations are going to get harder. Life is going to get harder. I mean, we're already at a place where social media, you know, you say the wrong thing and you're like, cancel off of social media instantly. But just wait, it's going to get worse. Pretty soon it'll be that you can't post about Jesus anymore or you're going to get blacklisted or your posts will magically disappear or what have you. If you get any kind of following, they're going to try to take you down. It's, it's completely relevant to look at that. And I'm not speaking from a position of fear. I, I'm just telling you that, like, we, we need to be preparing for what we're going into. The Bible tells us that in the end days, th- these are not going to be fun times. This isn't... We're, we're preparing for a hard life. We're preparing to endure a hard life. If you've said yes to Jesus... That means you're one of us. You're one of us, and the world is going to hate you. We don't need to be afraid of that, though. Like we, the devil has no power over a son or daughter of Christ. None. It looks like he might. Oh, it's getting kind of dark out here. But it doesn't matter. I mean, the worst-case scenario, you awaken and you're in heaven. Well done, good and faithful slave. Does that make death scary or not scary? Because in my mind, that's a lot less scary. So I just want to pray. Let's pray real quick. God, I pray that we will press into you.